And it's a, a great hymn uh, Charles Wesley wrote. And uh, I had a professor, it brings me back to my seminary days, because we had a professor that would sing a, a hymn every uh, morning and time that we met, and that must have been one of his favorites, because it was uh, on repeat weekly at least. So, um, amazing love, how can it be that my God would die for me? Wow. Uh, I think that'll be an anthem that we sing uh, for all of eternity, never fully resolving the answer in our minds, <laughs> because it surely wasn't anything in us, amen? Uh, at least in me. So, um, hey, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 5 uh, is where we're going to be camping out today. As I was studying uh, this week, I had a story that sort of came back to mind. I was in college and um, was invited to go to a retreat with a, a bunch of other uh, college students at a cabin. And, and this really is a cabin. It was like no running water. It wasn't the cabin that has the flat screen TVs and cable and wireless. This was a, you knew you were outdoors or at least close there to cabin. Um, and there was a zip line uh, that they had on the edge of this hill that was on the property. And, and it wasn't the kind of zip line that you clipped into. It was the kind of zip line that you held onto for dear life. Um, big difference. Big difference. And so um, I watched a bunch of my friends go off this, and you had to climb up this tree, hold on, zip line went down the hill, and then it was sort of the cable was routed through a door jam um, that was out in the middle of nowhere. And so you went through and then down as a way to anchor it. I watched my friends go through, and I thought, you know, you, you only live once. Why are you dragging your feet as it levels out, Right. Um, you only live once, and if you don't drag your feet, I found out that that, that once is a lot shorter than you were planning on. Um, so I, I, I said to myself, um, and then to my friend, I'm just going to go for it. Um, and I looked at the person that was standing next to me in the tree, and I said two, no, three words, um, tuck and go. And by that I mean I'm just going to hold up my knees, and I am going to fly the heck down this hill. And I did. And I was flying down the hill. I mean, wind in my hair. I'm sure that I thought everybody was watching going, oh, yeah. Bravo. This guy's unbelievable. He's doing a zip line like nobody ever has before, which is what everybody wants to hear. Um, and so I uh, get to the part where it levels out and my friend yells, drag your feet. And I think to myself, no, no, tuck and go. Tuck and go. And so I get to the point where um, my, and this is just proof that the late adolescent male brain is not fully developed until well past 21. Okay. So I, about a split second away from hitting this door jam with my head, my friend yells, let go. Like it's too late to drag your feet. Now it's time to just cut tail, bail and roll. Right. And so I think to myself, tuck and go, like for some reason these words, tuck and go were in my head and I held on to them and I tucked and goed right into my head hits that door jam because it flies up. My head hits the door jam and then my feet straddle that cable that went down to the bottom. Well, instantly I knew that I hadn't won the respect of everybody around me, but more the stupidity of my, what was going on inside of me was known to everybody loud and clear. And they all came and sort of looked over at me and my, the fog sort of parted. And I thought, you know, I should have traded tuck and go for let go at some point in there. You know, I, I mean, man, what a moron. And so um, I had a big knot on the side of my leg for a good few weeks and a big knot on my head to prove that tuck and go was not the way 
to go, evidently. Let go. Let go. Words I wish that I would have embraced a little bit. Let go. Isn't that, that's one of the hardest things for us as people, isn't it? As human beings, to, to let go. I mean, I'm not just talking about a, a zip line that we're flying down. That's hard then. And, but it's hard as, as, as humans. It's hard to let go. So some things that have gone on in our past, it's hard to let go. Some things that are sort of seared in our mind, it's hard to let go. Some ways of, of doing things, it's hard to let go. I think one of the reasons it's hard to let go is because we don't know what the future holds. When we let go, we let go into this sort of ambiguous fog of who knows what. And so a lot of us will hold on to the past. Even if the past has a tendency to, to haunt us and to kill us, it's more comfortable to hold on into the, into the, in the known, even if we don't like the known, but it's more comfortable to hold on in the known than it is to let go to the future. I've been stirred with this idea this week that I think one of the best sort of layman definitions of trust is the ability to let go. And to receive. And when it comes to our relationship with God, if that's where you're at this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think that one of the hardest things that can, that is for us as followers of Christ is to, to let go of some mindsets, of some things that happened, of some thoughts that we have, beliefs that we have, even about God, to let go and to receive what He has for us. I think one of the letting go is one of the hardest things we can do as people. It's one of the hardest things we can do as followers of Jesus. And I think it's one of the most freeing things that God invites us to. It's to let go. And to see what he might do and to see what he might bring. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, it's going to be no surprise to you that the, the Pharisees had a little bit of trouble letting go. Just a little bit. Now, I've loved studying the Pharisees because I see a lot of myself in them. It's hard for me to let go. It's hard for me to let God do something new in my life. But can we agree that if his spirit is alive and his spirit is active and his spirit is moving inside of you, which the scriptures claim that it is, so we can either trust that or fight that. Now, now, if it's his spirit's alive and active, then there might just be things that God does that are new in us. I sense that you don't share my excitement for that. There might just be things. If his word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, if his spirit lives inside of us, that, that it, it, part of being alive is growing, is it not? I mean, you know you're dead when you don't change. And so maybe, 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 God would invite us to a new sense of anticipation, a new invitation to let go in order to receive from him. Luke chapter 5, verse 33. We're going to continue where we left off in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. I'm going to read this whole passage, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it together. Here's the way it goes. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? 
But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. And he told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskin. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new. For he says, the old is better. Thought for sure as I was prepping that I'd get some amens when I read the old is better. Um, Just kidding. Pharisees had this problem. See, their problem was they were so entrenched in what they believed to be true about God that they were unable to let go in order to receive what Jesus brought. The, the, the core truth that we're going to try to wrap our hearts and our minds around this morning is this, is that Jesus did not come to reform religion. That wasn't his intention. He wasn't interested in fine-tuning what was old. He wasn't interested in taking the Pharisees' methods and modes of belief and saying, you're, you're on here, you're off here. What his goal was, was that he inaugurated, he brought in a new way of relating to God. A new relationship with God. You see, the Pharisees, they were, they were used to this idea that God had lowered down this ladder and said to them, all right, now, now climb. You climb in the way that you, in the way that you fast, in the way that you practice Sabbath, in the way that you give each little thing that you do is a ladder. And God in his grace and mercy, the Pharisees would have argued, has given us this ladder to climb. That's what we would consider sort of religion. It's man's attempt to get to God. But that wasn't Jesus's intention at all. And the reason Jesus got himself killed is because he said, listen, the ladder isn't for you to climb up. It's actually for God to climb down. And he inaugurated, he brought in this new way of relating to God, this new way of following Jesus, this new way of being quote-unquote spiritual. And was all about the fact that God's presence was with them and that God's person was with them in the form of Jesus and that he'd come not just to be an example and teach them what they needed to do, but to be a savior. That's why the psalmist writes that he pulled me out of the miry pit, not he dropped a ladder down for me to climb up. Those are two very different things. Well, the Pharisees had some trouble getting their mind around this idea because they were so used to climbing the ladder that it just felt like uh, it would be unspiritual to stop climbing. They couldn't let go. And so Jesus is going to tell them sort of three stories that are all going to sort of point at, they're all going to point at the same thing and it's an invitation. It's an invitation to let go. It's an invitation to believe that God is real and that his spirit is active and that if it is therefore real and he is active, then he might just be doing a new thing. Amen? Let's look at what he says a little bit more closely. Luke chapter 5, 33 through 35, read like this. And John's disciples often fast and pray 
And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Here's what he says. Jesus, your disciples are feasting while we're fasting. You have no respect for the fact that we are mourning and that we are waiting and that this is a desolate time in a desolate area. You go on partying and celebrating as though there's something to be joyful about, but we are spiritual and we are fasting and you are rubbing it in our face. How dare you? I lived with... um, 11 of my best friends in college. At least when we moved in, we were best friends. And when we moved out, we were good friends. Um, and I had a friend that talked one day about how much he loved Jello. And so we challenged him. We said, Pat, we're going to challenge you to only eat Jello for a whole week. Do you think you can do it? And he said, absolutely. I mean, guys do the dumbest things, don't they? Um, and so he, and, and it messes with your biology too, but that's a whole nother story. And he got to about day five and, and we, 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 we bet on this. And so, um, we knew we needed to pull out the big guns. And so my friend Pat is eating only jello and we start ordering pizzas and we have them delivered to the home and we eat them in, in very close proximity to our friend Pat. And we order big city burrito into the glory of God. We eat burritos right in front of his face. <laughs> I, I think that's how. The Pharisees fell. You rubbed it in our face, Jesus. Like we're mourning and we're fasting, but you're feasting. Doesn't make any sense. Well, see, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, there was only one day commanded for fasting. The Day of Atonement. It was a day where the nation of Israel would pause and where the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for the sin of the nation. And the nation would join with this confession to God in a form of fasting to say, God, we need your grace and your mercy towards us one day. Well, after the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed, they brought in another four days of fasting in order to remember what God had done or or actually in beckon God to restore Jerusalem to the way that they thought it should be. So now you have five days of fasting. Well, if you've read about the Pharisees, you know that the normal is just not good for a Pharisee because the spiritual elite have to do a little bit more than normal. And so they started fasting two times every week. Every Monday and every Thursday, the Pharisees would fast. Jesus comes on the scene and he feasts. They look at him like he's crazy. I love the way that Larry Osborne makes this point. He said, one of the first signs of legalism or even uh, being like a Pharisee is a heightened emphasis on the implications of Scripture rather than than the explicit commands of Scripture. It's this idea that if something works for me, then it should work for everybody and everybody should do it. And in fact, in my heart, in my soul, I'm holding you on the hook for what works for me. Jesus said, I'm not playing that game with you. He tells this story. The, the passage ends by him saying, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Like who? You're waiting for redemption and you're staring him in the face. That's his point. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days, they will fast. You see, here's the deal. The Pharisees were waiting for something that was already there. 
And Jesus says, I want you to let go because what you've been praying for and fasting for and mourning for and waiting for is here. And so he changes the game on them a little bit because here's what he does. He replaces mourning and waiting with joy in his presence. I think something that's distinct about the Pharisees is they like mourning. They feel guilty about celebrating. They feel guilty about the party. They feel guilty about enjoying because that's just not spiritual. I wonder if there are times when it's more spiritual to celebrate than it is to mourn. I wonder if most of the time it's more spiritual to celebrate than it is to mourn. You see, they were so used to fasting that they couldn't imagine feasting. See, religion for them was about conformity. It was about guilt. It was about shame. It was about climbing to get to God. And Jesus' whole declaration to them is God has come to you. So rejoice. Enjoy it. I love the way uh, that John the Baptist sort of talks about it. He says, the bridegroom, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. He's talking about Jesus and he says, that joy is mine. And it's now complete. Can I ask you a question? Will you look up at me for something for just a second? I think a lot of followers of Jesus are waiting on things that God has already given us. We pray things like, God, we invite your presence to come. And it sounds really spiritual. And it sounds really good. But maybe a better prayer is, God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see your presence here. Because it is. Because it is. We pray for things like, God, please make me new. Change me. Bring me freedom. And he says, I have. Why don't you walk in it? Why don't you, why don't you step into it? I think there's a lot of things that we pray for that he's already said yes to. And so I challenge you as, you, as you walk through the scriptures, as you spend time in God's word, what are the things that he's saying to you and he's speaking to you? I've already done this. Just open your eyes. Walk into it. Quit waiting, but enjoy. Enjoy. Because I'm being good to you. So the question is, should we fast? Should we fast? And, and my answer is, Sure. It's not commanded anywhere in the New Testament. And in fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, and and follow me here, and surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you right now, right here, would be encompassed in always. True? True. So Jesus is here. So he says when the bridegroom's here, you don't need to fast. So the question is, should we fast? Now, the answer, I think, is yes, if it's helpful. And let me tell you how I think it can be helpful. 
Because he says, uh, you will fast when the bridegroom's taken away. Now, he's either talking about the time that we live in now or only talking about the three days that he was buried in the ground. Okay? So I think he's talking about the time that we live in now. The Pharisees, they fasted in mourning and waiting. But you are invited to a different kind of fast. You're invited to fast not in order to wait for his presence, but because you've already tasted his presence. You're invited to fast because you've tasted the goodness of God and fasting sometimes, the absence of something creates a space for God to fill and he's faithful to fill it. And he's faithful to fill it. I love the way that John Piper puts it when he says this, the new fasting is grounded in the truth that the bridegroom has come, not just that he will come. The new wine of his presence calls for new fasting. And so there's this, there's this ache, there's this knowledge that we were designed for an intimacy of God that right now we do live in a reality of, but a shadow of. Listen to the way that Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians. We're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So there's a different intensity to his presence, but we still live in the shadow and the reality of his presence now. The big difference is that the Pharisees were proud of their hunger. But Jesus invites you to fast in order to be led to the feast of his presence. Not to be proud of the hunger pains, but to bask in the joy and the glory and the new way of seeing his presence here and now. I think fasting for the believer can be taking the proverbial dial of the radio and turning the dial just a little bit that we can know and see and hear and taste his grace in a little bit fresher way. And if it's not part of your rhythm, can I invite you to just see? It's not a command, it's an invitation to see if God might shower you more and more with his presence as you create space for him to fill. Well, Jesus goes on and he says this. So we have one story, the bridegroom. Second story, the clothes. And he says, he told them this parable. No one wears, tears a patch from a new garment and he sews it on the old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Oh, the good old sewing illustration. Everybody loves a sewing illustration. And Jesus here, he says something that everybody would have known and everybody would have recognized. And he talks about a, a hole in clothes that they had a new um, cloth that they put on. And when that shrunk, it would ruin the whole garment. See, I think there's a deeper truth that if you look at what Jesus is saying, I think there's a deeper truth that he's pointing out. I think he's pointing out to the Pharisees, Pharisees, you know that you have a hole in what you believe. I think he's saying that you know that there's some deficiency that you try to accomplish the law and live what you say you believe, but you can't do it, Matthew chapter 23. There's a hole in what you believe, Pharisees, and and you're hoping that I will come and patch the hole. And Jesus says, I'm not going to be your patch. I'm not going to be the patch that you wear and the patch that keeps your theology, Pharisee, intact. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not a patchwork kind of God. I'm a robe of righteousness kind of God. 
And the Pharisees wanted Jesus to perpetuate this, this way of being with God that involved us climbing to him. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I won't be part of your religious game. I will be your God and I will be your righteousness or I will be nothing at all. Can I be honest? I think a lot of people, myself included at times, approach Jesus in this way of uh, we want him to be a patch for us. We want him to be a patch for us. And he says, listen, uh, you take all of me or you take none of me, but I don't play the in-between game. I'll say it like this this morning, that Jesus claims that he will be received or rejected, but that he will not be incorporated. He says, my, my invitation to you is to live life in the rhythms of grace and Pharisees. You can't take your law and your climbing and my grace and my approach to you and my pursuit of you and, and try to match it. You've got to let go. You've got to let go of trying to get to me on your own, trying to work yourself to my level on your own. And you have to receive. To receive grace, to receive mercy. But I think we like patchwork Jesus, don't we? I mean, we like to hold on to our way of doing things and our way of, of approaching life. And we want Jesus to fix the stuff we know is broken. Jesus, please fix my finances. They're a mess. Jesus, please fix my relationships. They're a mess. Jesus, keep, Jesus, please heal my, my depression because I'm a mess. And he says, follow. Leave it all. I'll be your robe of righteousness, but I won't be your patchwork religion. So, so I wonder if Jesus is saying to some in this room today, you've sort of been riding the fence a little bit. Like you, you want Jesus to fix your life, but you don't want him to become your life. Because there's some fear in letting go, isn't there? There's some fear in saying, listen, this might change things. God, if you do a, a new thing in my life, it might mean that I have to say goodbye to some of the old things. And here's the thing. It does mean that. I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't tell you. That's what he means. You follow me fully or not at all. If you go back to verse 32, what's interesting is that Jesus talks about calling sinners to repentance, to a change of mind, and it's a change of way. Mark talks about the fact, or I'm sorry, Matthew in chapter 9, verse 13, talks about the fact that we, he no longer, God no longer desires sacrifice, but mercy. Not earning, but receiving. The Pharisees just couldn't get it. I think they probably walked away from Jesus and said, that guy's a heretic. In fact, if you read down, continue to read, they decide at this point, let's kill the guy. Let's kill the guy because he's speaking heresy. This can't be true. Because surely if God were to come, he would want to work within our system. 
I wonder if there's some things about the way that we approach God. I wonder if some things about the way that you approach God and, and just personally in your devotional life that maybe if he were to sow a new patch of grace on would just tear you apart. I wonder if there's things that he's calling us to release, to let go of, so that we can receive from him all that he desires to bring to us. Well, he tells one last story. And I think they get progressively more pointed as they go. So if you're uncomfortable now, just wait. Here's what he says. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. See, the way that they made wine back in the day was that they would take a bunch of grapes and they'd put it in a press and they would press down and the first press was always the best wine and they would put it in what they called a wine skin, which was an animal skin that had been um, dried out and scraped and they would put the grape juice in there, hang it in the cellar in order for it to ferment. And as it fermented, the wine and the wine skin grew. And if he does, the new wineskin will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the and the wineskins will be ruined. Here's his point. If you try to mix the old way of law and the new way of grace, it's going to ruin them both. Which isn't that what we're great at? Ironically, isn't I think oftentimes followers of Jesus are great at just tossing in a little law. It's only grace. Wow. What would people do with that? No. The new wineskin must be poured into... The new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new. For he says, the old is better. Jesus came. So Jesus says this sort of tongue-in-cheek. Because now, wine, as it ages, does get better. Back then, it got a little bit stale. It got a little bit rotten because of the way that it was stored. And what he's saying is there's some people that are so used to the taste of old wine, old stale wine, that they couldn't possibly imagine the gift and invitation of new wine. And what he refers to, he says, listen, the the new wine, listen, just... Really carefully, follow me here. The new wine is bigger than the container that your old wine was stored in. The new wine is better. The new wine is bigger. The new wine is more pervasive. The old system can't contain the new outpouring of what God wants to do. So he says, you can either hold on to your old system and I'll blow it up. Or you can get a new wineskin and I'll fill it. Which one do you want? Oh man, you guys, can I just tell you? I, I got wrecked by that this week. Because I asked a dangerous question. God, what in my life is old wineskin? And he starts answering. And sometimes the old wineskin is things that I really enjoy. It's times where I really felt God move. And he's saying to me, Ryan, I know you love that and I was good in that. But will you receive, will you open yourself up to receive something new? And in order to receive something new, it requires that we let go of something old. Because man, wouldn't it be easy 
A lot easier if Jesus played our patchwork game, if we could say to God, hey, God, let us let us hold on to the old and you bring the new. And he says, no, the old system can't handle the new. Because what my spirit wants to do in you is bigger than what it did before. Because my spirit moving in you is bigger than you can handle right now. So will you approach me and I will give you new wineskin. I think the Pharisees probably said amongst themselves, but we haven't done it that way. That's not how we do it here. And Jesus goes, that's the point. It's new wine. It's new grace. It's new mercy. It's doing away with the ladder. It's God here with you, not you climbing up to him. It's bigger. It's better. And the old way can't contain it. And so he makes this point. New movements of God are only received when old ways are released. So I had somebody come up to me after last service and say, are we not singing hymns anymore? No. No. I also had somebody come up to me and say, I think you're, that maybe you bordered on heresy. And I said, and this was my honest response. Okay, good. Not that I'm, not that I'm a heretic, but good that you're processing and that God is stirring in you and God is moving. That just maybe the gospel would do something new in us. Because Jesus, I think the worst thing to Jesus is that people went, yeah, okay, cool. His message was not cool. It was not okay. It was either you give your life and receive his or you don't. And you don't. Here's this. I just have this crazy belief as I read scripture that God is alive. And, And I think it's not just true back then, but I think it's true now. And by think, I mean no. That is true now. And so if he's alive and if he's moving and if he's active, as his spirit says, then just maybe he might do new things in our midst. Maybe his spirit might move us in new directions. It either, it either, we either expand and grow with a move of his spirit or he bursts us. I get this picture as I was running yesterday, I had to, just I was listening to worship music and, and running, and um, I just got this picture of the floods that we had last uh, last week in Colorado, and all that water, all that water was 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 really good and really bad. But here's the thing: the only reason it was bad is because our rivers and our dams and our lakes couldn't handle the outflow of blessing from heaven. That's why it was bad. And the blessing, the good thing, actually brought destruction. So that's why this is a terrifying passage. Because either we approach God in old wineskin and old wine and stay stale, or we approach him with new wineskin and he moves in new ways. But if we approach him with old wineskin and he pours out new wine, he blows us up. Here's the thing. In my life... Corporately, I just got this sense that God was saying to me, Ryan, I am pouring out new wine. 
I'm pouring out new presence. I'm pouring out new grace. My spirit's going to move in new ways and do new things. And you can either receive it individually or I'll blow you up in the best way possible. Uh, You can receive it or it will destroy you. That's the terrifying thing about a move of God. You either move with it or it runs you over. And as I prepared and as I studied, I just got this sense of glorious heaviness that God might be doing something in our midst corporately that would require us to release some things. I got the sense that God might be doing some things in your life individually that would require you to release some things in order to be filled with his glory and his grace and his mercy. You see, the wine is his grace. It's his goodness. It's his presence with us, but it couldn't be contained in an old system. Look at the way that Mark talks about this. He says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. This is awesome. Stick with me. It's going to relate, I promise. And the curtain of the temple was torn like a wineskin that was old and had new wineskin poured into it, and it just burst. The curtain was intended to keep a separation between a holy God and a people so that it didn't crush those people. The curtain was God's grace and mercy under the old covenant, but in the new covenant, The curtain is no longer necessary. And the new wine breaks forth and flows from this new curtain. It says, and the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died. And he said, surely this man is the son of God. And you see, Jesus' death makes access for everyone to stand and to come into the presence of God. It's the new Wine in the new covenant. We say it every single time we take communion. Jesus says on the night that he's betrayed, he takes the cup and there's wine in it. And he says, this cup is the new covenant, which is made in my blood. And you see, wine is blood. It's grace. It's mercy that pours out and that cannot be contained in old legalistic ways of approaching God. It explodes those ways to the glory of God. The new wine means that you now are justified, holy, spotless, blameless before God. The old wineskin couldn't handle that because you were on a ladder. The new wineskin handles that, appreciates that, glories in that, lives in that, and has it shape the rest of the course of your life. The new wineskin understands that we have peace with God because we're justified freely by His grace. The new wine allows us not just to be buried with Christ through baptism, but raised to walk in newness of life. See, the new wine is, is alive. And Jesus didn't just pour it out, but Jesus pours it out. He pours it out. And I think that we're in a season where new wine is being poured out. And we can be people who receive it or people who drown in it. The choice really is ours. The choice is ours. Will we go to God and say to God, I'm willing to let go. 
I'm willing to let go of my past. I'm willing to let go of my pride. I'm willing to let go of everything that I have in place of you in order to receive what it is that you have for me. See, if there, we have a conviction in us that we never stop growing as people, as followers of Jesus, then new wine should be great news for us. But if we're afraid of what God might do if he's real and he's active, the new wine should terrify us. See, you are that wineskin. And his blood and his grace is that wine. And he fills you up and he fills us up corporately, not in order to have it sit and to become stagnant, but to be poured out for the joy of the nations, for the glory of God, for the neighborhoods that surround this place. He fills us in order to use us. And then he comes back. See, we go back to him and he says, that was good, wasn't it? Here's a new wine skin, and I'm going to fill that, and it's going to be bigger, and it's going to be better than you thought previously. Friends, is it possible that the God that we talk about, that the God that we serve, that the God we love is real and active? And if so, if so, maybe there's some things that he might just be calling us to let go of. To receive from him new wine. New wine. My prayer this whole week has been, God, pour out your new wine in my life. And I realized about halfway through the week that that was a terrifying prayer. Because if he pours it out, I need to be ready to receive it or to be blown up by it. But the longer I thought about that, the more I thought, you know what? I'd rather be blown up by new wine than live in old wine skin and old wine my whole life. And so it's with that approach that we say to God, God, we're willing to let go of some things. Maybe even some things that we love and some things that we've grown accustomed to and some things that we can't imagine living apart from in order to receive a new outpour of your grace and your mercy in our life. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer?